0: Africa rise and shine. Africa, Zulza. Africa, Amka na unai.
1: Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onel Nzenzi, Tabisolo Hoko and Msebudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... South Sudan Militant Group to release 3,000 child soldiers. And African leaders prepare for AU Summit in Ethiopia. In, sports, in economics, the World Bank warns sub-Saharan economies that rely on capital inflows. And in sports news, South and Senegal crash out of the Africa Cup of Nations. But first up the news with Onel
2: Some of Zimbabwe's remaining white farmers are reportedly being evicted as a result of the country's long-running political turmoil. Mandy Chimene, a newly appointed provincial governor for Manicaland province, said at a rally last week that she had evicted white farmers from 12 farms in one district alone. She claimed they were being protected by the former Vice President Joyce Mujuru, who was ousted from the ruling ZANU-PF Congress in December. Another newly appointed governor, Joey Biggie Matiza of Mashonaland East Province says he will take similar actions by the end of this month. Lesotho's Independent Electoral Commission says reports of intimidation of candidates have not derailed readiness for the February 28th polls. More than 1,000 candidates have registered. Last week, candidates of, of the Basutu Convention in Mokokong said armed men in arm, army uniforms went to their homes. IEC Commissioner Mamusi Bipolo Polo says an independent tribunal handles the complaints and so far they are not worried.
3: There is a tribunal at IEC, which is not meant by the commissioners or any member of staff, but which is meant by the outside independent tribunal to handle those. So, whether they are there, not there, it's not the extent to where we can say, as IEC, where I'm sitting, that, no, this will interfere with the elections.
2: Nigeria's electoral commission says the country will hold presidential elections as scheduled on February 14th, rejecting a call from one of the president's advisers to delay them. President Goodluck Jonathan's National Security Advisor Sambo Dasuki last week said that Nigeria should delay the elections to allow more time for permanent voter cards to be distributed. Some 30 million cards have yet to be handed out. The elections will be the first where Nigeria's 68.8 million voters must have biometric cards, a measure introduced to guard against fraud that has plagued past polls. Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir will be challenged by 43 opposition political parties in presidential elections on April 13th. The announcement comes shortly after the Sudan's main opposition national Omar party led by veteran politician Sadiq al-Madi withdrew from the elections, claiming that the polls will not be free and fair because, as he puts it, al-Bashir controls everything in Sudan. James Shimanyula has more.
0: As 43 opposition political parties are ranged against President El Bashir, the country's largest opposition political group, National Umar Party, NUM has boycotted the polls. Maryam Sadiq El-Mahdi, daughter of National Umar Party leader Sadiq El-Mahdi, confirmed the party's decision to stay away. The decision by the National Ummah Party of Sadiq El-Mahdi not to participate in the election automatically paves the way for President Hassan Ahmed El-Bashir to emerge victorious and rule Sudan for another five-year term.
2: And finally, the Harting Province government in South Africa has joined the business fraternity in the country's biggest township, Soweto, south of Johannesburg, in warning foreign shop owners not to return to townships yet. Hundreds of foreigners have fled townships in the province since their shops were looted last week. Amid an uneasy calm, some shopkeepers are back in business, while many more are staying clear of the townships. Harting Community Safety Official Cesar Geling Osi Malobani says it's not safe to do business. In as usual.
0: We would not advise them to come back, so maybe they can give it something like a year.
2: If these people they come back, and then what will happen next?
4: So either these guys, let them stay where they are.
5: We requested that they close for three days. We also escorted them out, some of them, to go and, and actually uh, store their goods uh, safely somewhere in, in, in Mayfair. They were supposed to start operating yesterday, but through the negotiations that we had with them, we then decided that maybe we should wait.
2: Channel Africa News
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, tzorna. Africa, amuka na unai.
1: Thank you, Onil. It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Women's Empowerment and Development in Africa will be under the spotlight at the 24th Assembly of Heads of State and Government at the African Union Summit, which begins in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia on Friday. The summit will be held under the theme 2015, the Year of Women's Empowerment and Development Towards Africa's Agenda, 2063. For more on this, spoke to Dr. Solomon Desso, head of the Peace and Security Council report at the Institute for Security Studies in Addis Ababa.
6: As you know, the theme of the summit is uh, on women empowerment and development towards Agenda 2063. So uh, there would be a specific uh, summit session dedicated to uh, discussions around women empowerment and development. Uh, within the framework of Agenda 2063. So that is one of the issues that is commonly known. But there is expectation that uh, other pressing issues carried over from uh, 2014 uh, and also that emerged in the course of this month are likely to take the spotlight uh, and dominate much of the discussion uh, during the course of the summit and around the summit and these are mostly peace and security issues and related thematic issues.
5: On the peace and security issues there have been calls from various corners of the world for the leaders to put high on the agenda what we are currently witnessing coming out of uh, Nigeria. Do you see this topping the agenda?
6: Certainly it is uh, one of the major issues that would uh, attract attention during the course of the summit. Uh, There have been proposals Uh, the operationalization of regional task force against Boko Haram with its base in Baga, northeastern Nigeria, on the border with Chad and Cameroon. And uh, as you know, that uh, town has been brought down and destroyed by the attacks of Boko Haram on on the 3rd and the 7th of uh, January. Uh, So there is mounting, actually, interest and then pressure for the speedy operationalization of the response the regional response against Boko Haram, this latest incidents of violence and the escalation, uh, both in Nigeria and in the neighbouring countries, particularly Cameroon, has put the agenda on Boko Haram very high in the media as well as uh, in, in, in the preparations uh, up to the AU summit. So there would definitely be one of the major themes that would be discussed on the sidelines as well as in the summit. Would be the uh, rise and rise of terrorism uh, on the continent, and in that context, the recent incidence uh, of violence by Boko Haram definitely would be uh, the most prominent ones
5: another issue which was topical and um wreaked havoc on the continent last year was um, ebola although we haven't had any new cases in recent weeks or months just what do you make of the way the african union has handled this pandemic
6: you may recall the ebola outbreak has been one of the the one of the unknown you know emergencies for which nobody has been prepared so like uh, the countries in uh, affected by Ebola, the rest of the international community, interna- including the World Health, Health Organization, the AU has not been up to speed in terms of responding to the Ebola crisis. Uh, it's only much later uh, after many international, after it has become an international issue that the AU started to respond to the Ebola crisis, including through convening an emergency Executive Council meeting here in Addis by the chairperson of the EU Commission. But once uh, the AU started uh, responding to the Ebola crisis, uh, in terms of, you know, uh, keeping the issue high on the continental agenda, and also in terms of mobilizing African countries to contribute towards the fight against Ebola, uh, and also in, you know, mobilizing resources to so that effect, uh, the AU has been performing pretty well. Uh, as you may recall, there was a meeting, uh, a fundraising meeting uh, that was convened uh, by uh, the AU in collaboration with the African Development Bank, as well as the um, UN Economic Commission for Africa, In uh, that uh, led to the raising of uh, over 30 million uh, U.S. dollars from uh, private companies uh, operating in Africa, uh, and then it, uh, the AU also led to the establishment of the African support in the fight against Ebola. It's uh, the first humanitarian mission to be established by the African Union, uh, which has been up and running. Uh, although it has been its operational addition has been uh, slow because of delayed deployment of personnel and more additional personnel, and because it has been the first such kind of uh, operation to be uh, undertaken by the African Union for uh, a health emergency. And it is expected to be one of the major issues to receive uh, attention during the course of the summit. Uh, There will be a joint uh, AU-UN meeting specifically dedicated to the Ebola outbreak uh, in in, uh, West Africa, and the AU will present also a report during the summit uh, regarding the African response uh, and the launch of the fund, the Ebola fund by the African Union chairperson as well.
1: That was Dr. Solomon Derso, head of the Peace and Security Council report at the Institute for Security Studies in Addis Ababa, speaking to Channel Africa's Atlanta Samu. It's 8.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The African Union has signed a Memorandum of Understanding with China on continental infrastructure. The agreement is the beginning of a network of projects expected to connect the African continent through high-speed railways, aviation projects and industrialization. The agreement was signed at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, by the chairperson of the African Union, Dr. Nkosazana Lamini zuma and the Chinese Foreign Affairs. Minister Zhang Ming, Special Envoy of the Chinese Government. Koleta Wanjohi reports. In 2014, there was a high-level visit
3: from the People's Republic of China to Africa, and during a meeting with the African Union Commission, Africans aired out what the continent needs to attain its objectives of a prosperous, united and peaceful Africa driven by its own people. Amongst other things was the need to cooperate with China on issues at the continental level and especially around infrastructure development. At the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, the first step towards this has been made with an agreement between the African Union and China. Dr. Dlamini Nkosazana Zuma, the chairperson of the African Union Commission, explains that the memorandum of understanding that China has signed with the African Union on continental transport will give Africa regional high-speed railways, highways, regional aviation and industrialization.
1: This is very important because railways both carrying goods but also more importantly carrying passengers and the high speed rail is going to be very critical because we have a huge continent and we need to
5: be linked and this project is to link all our capitals and commercial centers, so that we can be able to move quickly, in bulk, by rail across the continent.
3: For now, these continental projects are still on paper level. The work of the planning, evaluation, and looking at the sources of funding is yet to be done by technical committees that have been set up. The special envoy of the Chinese government, Zhang Min, says that this is going to be a long-term project since it involves connecting the whole continent.
7: Actually, if we take a long-term
4: perspective, you will come to understand that what we have signed today is the continuation of the traditional cooperation between China and Africa. Because 40 years ago, China built the first railway here in Africa, and that was the Tanzara Railway. And, uh, actually, we have achieved a lot more in terms of world development. Because wherever you go in Africa, without knowing, it's quite possible that you are traveling on a road built by the cooperation between China and Africa.
3: The cost of the project, sources of funding, and how long the project will take are yet to be determined after the technical committees come up with the requirements in cash and kind for the continental projects to be completed. This memorandum of understanding is the first step towards the implementation of Agenda 2063, which outlines plans on how Africa should move towards political, economic, and social development in the next 50 years. Collector Anjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa.
1: Around 3,000 child soldiers in South Sudan are scheduled to be released from fighting, according to the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF. The children were recruited by the South Sudan Democratic Army's COBRA faction. Some had been fighting for almost four years in the country's civil conflict. UNICEF, which is facilitating the process, says close to 250 children have already been demobilized and will soon start to reintegrate into schools. Lucy Edward-Jubara asked Fatouma Ibrahim, Chief of Child Protection at UNICEF, about the operation.
8: Right now, the release is for 249 children who have been registered in Gumrock. There are other five locations that um, we will be supporting the release in. Hopefully, by the end of visiting all these five locations, all the children that are associated right now with the COBRA faction will have been released and assisted to go back to their families immediately or later on.
5: And then what
8: kind of support UNICEF is providing? We are giving immediate support to these children through um, family tracing and hopefully reunification with their families. But as they are being released, they are taken to what we call an interim care. So they will be in that center for a few days or maybe a few weeks while the families are being traced. And while they are there, they will be involved in different activities, life skills, uh, programming, where they can learn about peace building, mediation, conflict uh, resolution conflict mitigation and you know just being themselves as we prepare for them to join schools very few have already been to school the majority have not been to school at all so we know that those kids experience things uh, that they will not forget about it easy you know is there any uh, psychological help will be provided to them Yes, indeed. We are putting in a place uh, program that will be able to respond to that. One of my colleagues is a psychologist, so he's going there already on Thursday, and uh, he will start staying with those children, understanding um, you're really doing a quick assessment, not a deep psychological assessment, mm-hmm. but just to understand and then to start working with the children, working with the communities on what they can do to help these children get over the experiences that they've gone through. Of course, it's something that is going to take time. It's not a one-day fix, but we will start the process. And even for the local community to accept them when they are back? Exactly. There has been a bit of community sense what we see from uh, the we uh, stage to both uh, Gumrock and uh, to uh, People, it seems like those children did not create a lot of problems within the communities. So they will be, I think, accepted. The one thing that communities are nervous about is the gun. So the children are agreeing to give out their guns. Like one 16-year-old told my colleague, that it's fine to give up my gun, as long
1: as I can go to school. And that was Fatuma Ibrahim, chief of child protection at UNICEF, speaking to Lucy Edward Jubara.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa,
7: wake up. Africa, Africa, toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rising. Le soleil est wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, dumelang, sanbonani. Africa mulishani kunibonje. Africa, yeyemi kilonsele. Africa ndinkem, kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from, we are one, one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria.
0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, Amika Naungai.
1: Doctors Without Borders, MSF, says it has recorded a downward trend of new cases in its Ebola management centers across Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. While this is a promising development, the agency has cautioned that loss of vigilance now would jeopardize the progress made in stemming the epidemic. Ebola has so far sickened more than 21,000 people since it emerged in the region, killing over 8,500 others. For more on this, Elizabeth Lediha spoke to Jens Pedersen, Humanitarian Policy Advisor for MSF in South Africa.
9: Well, indeed, we have recorded a decreased number of cases in our facilities. It's difficult to say specifically this or that reason is behind it, but we know that increased awareness of Ebola and reaction to patients' suspect of being infected with Ebola in the communities. So basically a uh, higher community awareness and alertness to Ebola has certainly contributed to it. On top of that, the ones suspected of having Ebola now have better access to treatment. They are structures in place for safe burials in the communities and in the hospitals as well. So there's a mix of factors that have contributed to the increased number of cases we are seeing now.
10: What does this decline mean for aid agencies like yours working on the ground in the region?
9: Well, it means that we need to adapt. A decrease in the number of cases doesn't mean that the Ebola outbreak is over, far from. Now, it allows, the fact that there are fewer cases, it allows to take a critical look at what needs to be done next. And in that sense, organizations need to focus much stronger on continued community awareness. We still see a lot of stigma. We are still seeing quarantines being applied by authorities. Those things sometimes result in patients not having access to right care, not having access to the right amount of food and water and so forth. So that needs to be addressed. Also, there needs to be a much better focus on what we call surveillance, which means that People that have been in contact with a patient are registered and they are monitored and followed up regularly. So should they develop symptoms of Ebola, they can then be facilitated to a facility where they can get treatment. So there are still many things that need to be improved in order for the number of lower cases to translate into zero cases.
10: I was about to ask Jens, is it realistic to aim for zero cases at this stage?
9: Well, it's always been realistic to aim at zero cases. However, much more needs to be done, and we need to make sure that we adapt to the reality. So when we do see a lower number of cases, it means that we need to change from a focus on treatment facilities and hospitals for Ebola patients to more mobile facilities, more mobile kind of response to be able to reach the patients where they are in guinea for example we are now seeing a stable number of patients but we're seeing them spread over a larger geographic area organizations need to get out of the hospitals that they have built which were based on a need that goes a few weeks or months back what
10: are some of the problems standing in the way of further progress
9: we are seeing in three countries and among the organizations involved very top-heavy approach, an approach that is not suited and adapted to the current needs. So when I said organization needs to get out of the facilities that are now treating fewer patients, we're seeing that there's still a focus on treatment facilities. There's still a reluctancy to become more mobile and to become more rapid in responding to new but smaller pockets in perhaps more distant and more rural areas. So there's a lack of coordination, for example, surveillance of potential Ebola patients and contacts are not done across the borders of the three countries. So certainly there are gaps when it comes to coordination and there is gaps when it comes to adapting what we are doing to stop the diminishing Ebola outbreak. What organizations were doing two or three months ago? is not relevant anymore.
10: And what lessons would you say you've learned over the months as MSF dealing with this regional problem?
9: Well, we've learned certainly from this outbreak and previous outbreaks as well that it's incredibly unpredictable, which is also why we're saying at the moment that we need to still remain vigilant and we need to adapt our approach. In Guinea, we've seen numbers decrease and then subsequently increasing again. So we mustn't fool ourselves and believe that because we are now seeing fewer number of patients in our facilities that then it's all over and we can pack up and don't worry about Ebola. Also we're seeing that patients that are not affected by Ebola but are affected by malaria, malnutrition, pneumonia or pregnant women that needs to deliver as a consequence of poor health system which has collapsed under the Ebola, many healthcare workers have been infected and unfortunately many healthcare workers have died as well. We are now seeing that the general public healthcare system is suffering and in many cases non-existing. There needs to be a focus on that as well in the time going forward.
10: Finally there, remind us again about the role that MSF is playing in the quest to contain the Ebola
9: outbreak. Since the beginning of the outbreak in January last year, MSF has been involved with treatment facilities and outreach activities in all the countries affected, also in Mali, which has now been declared Ebola-free, Senegal as well. We've treated more than 5,000 Ebola patients in the region in the current outbreak, and we are trying to adapt, and we have as well, in light of the challenges of other healthcare issues as well, for example, in Liberia distributed anti-malarial tablets to more than half a million people. And in the capital area of Sierra Leone in Freetown, we have distributed malaria treatment to more than 1.6 million people. It's an outbreak where we certainly have been involved and it's an outbreak where we certainly continue to remain involved.
1: That was Jens Pedersen, Humanitarian Policy Advisor for Doctors Without Borders in South Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Grand Challenges Canada, funded by the Government of Canada, has announced 1.6 million US dollars to improve mental health in Africa. The funding will enable a major expansion of an award-winning model for helping those living with mental illness in Ghana, Kenya and Nigeria. The basic needs model seeks to address the urgent and currently unmet challenge for better treatment and expanded access to care for those living with mental disorders in resource-poor settings. For more on this, Jane Matabula spoke to the founder of the model, Chris Underhill.
11: The investment of uh, 1 million Canadian dollars is the organisation GCC Grand Challenges Canada has invested in a model for mental health and development and it has been invested into our social enterprise, which takes place in several countries, for example, Kenya, Ghana, and Nigeria.
10: Now, let's
3: reflect more on mental health. How much of a problem are mental illnesses in Africa?
11: Mental health is a big problem in Africa, as it is elsewhere, by the way. Something like 450 million people globally suffer from mental ill health, and something like 365 million people suffer from mental ill health in the low and middle income countries. Mental health is always related to the total population of a given country, and as you know, some of the African countries are growing very fast now with populations of people that are, for example, half the population under the age of 20, for example. So there's very fast growth in these populations, and therefore it is quite a big issue, and in many cases the countries are not really prepared yet for handling large numbers of mentally ill people.
3: Speaking of countries not being able to handle very large numbers of people suffering from mental illness, what are usually the challenges that um, need to be addressed or what are usually the challenges that many countries face in terms of trying to deal with mental illnesses?
11: Yes. So first of all, most of the sub-Saharan countries in Africa typically have one kind of institution or place where uh, traditionally mentally ill people have been sent for treatment and often incarceration for long periods of time. The problem for poor families is that they often don't want to send their family member very far away from them for humanitarian reasons but also cost reasons, and they fear that they won't see them back again. And so the solution has been more and more focused on giving community-based treatment, which is very effective, and that's what our model, the basic needs model for mental health and development, emphasizes, which is what the grant is really about. So I think the issue then is really about delivering a local service, and so the challenges there are to make sure that community health posts and district medical facilities understand what mental illness is and that they are given appropriate training to recognize it, I think that's very important, and that also would apply to health workers who live and work in the community. In fact, in many ways, health workers are the first line of defense in this kind of work. Uh, Recognition of mental illness is an important feature.
3: Now, Chris, the funding will benefit three particular countries, Ghana, Kenya, and Nigeria. Is there a
10: specific reason why these three countries?
11: Yes. The reason is because in those countries, there are organizations who have actually been able to apply to basic needs and have met the due diligence criteria for social franchising. And then we have been able to present them as bona fide organizations to the funder, Grand Challenges Canada, and so there we are it's very much a case of there being leadership in those organizations who happen to be in those countries.
3: And lastly, I understand that over three years, the funding is projected to help 10,000 people, right?
11: Yes, that is correct. Over the next three to four years, that's right. Of course, a grant like this is really like a Kickstarter, and whilst you are right, that is the projection. In fact, it will be many more than that as the programs become larger Mm -hmm. and are able to accommodate more people both beneficiaries and also carers, because of course, as you probably appreciate, carers are also a very important feature of a mental health program.
1: That was Chris Underhill, founder of Basic Needs and International Development Organization on the line from London, the United Kingdom, speaking to Jane Matibula. Our headlines up next with Onelenthinti.
2: Leader of Somalia's al-Shabaab militant group quits the insurgency and renounces violence perpetrated by the al-Qaeda-linked group. Some of Zimbabwe's remaining white farmers are being evicted as a result of the country's long-running political turmoil. And African civil society organizations blame African heads of states for failing the African people by intentionally failing to implement already recommended policies. Channel Africa News.
7: Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. It's 6 o'clock, it's 6 6h du matin. Sun rising, the soleil elevated. We are we What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang sanbonani. san bonani. Africa, mulishani, mulibwange. Africa, ayin yomi, kilon Africa, ndinkim, king cool, no. Which in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, DRC, South Africa Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Tunisia, Zambia, Egypt, Ch- Madagascar, Angola, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Algeria, Cameroon. It, it doesn't, doesn't matter where you're, where you're from. from, we are, we are one, one people. people, Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G-Exploits, G-Exploits from Nigeria.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorba. Africa, amuka na unai.
1: To the Middle East now, where the maintenance of peace across the so-called blue line that separates Lebanon from Israel has been highlighted as one of the country's greatest achievements of the past three years by the UN's former senior official in Lebanon. Among Derek Plumbly's most important responsibilities at the helm of the Beirut-based UN political office in Lebanon, Unskol was helping to maintain security across the Blue Line. The border zone was part of the deal which brought an end to the 2006 war between Israel and the Lebanese group Hezbollah. Paulina Kubiak asked Derek Plumbly, who recently left his post in Lebanon about the importance of maintaining the peace.
12: Well, I think the key accomplishment of the past three years in Lebanon has been that a measure of stability has been maintained to the benefit of the people of Lebanon, both across the country and across the blue line with Israel. I'm not saying that this is a particular accomplishment of me myself, though I think my mission has played an important part in that. Really, it's an accomplishment of the Lebanese people who have been determined to avoid becoming collectively embroiled in the civil war in Syria, and to sustain calm across the blue line.
3: And then on the flip side, what do you see as the greatest challenge? Either your greatest challenge or on skulls.
12: Well, the greatest challenge we faced has been coping with the consequences of the conflict in Syria. Despite this resistance expressed in a policy of disassociation, in a declaration of all the political leaders which we strongly supported and encouraged, which was blessed by the Security Council called the Babda Declaration, that keep out of affairs in Syria, there has inevitably been spillover in form intermittently of terrorism. There's been inevitably political polarization because people have different views as to what's happening in Syria. And there has been the largest refugee influx proportionate to population in the world, the greatest number of Syrian refugees presently are in Lebanon so these are enormous impacts and those are the challenges which for most of the time there have been other challenges too but those are the ones which have exercised us all most.
3: I believe that there are some 1.1 million refugees at the moment in Lebanon. What has been your role in supporting Lebanon's ability to accommodate this growing group?
12: Well, I and my deputy, who is the humanitarian coordinator as well, have been deeply involved on this front, and the political role, of course, is one of advocacy, advocacy with donors and advocacy with the Lebanese authorities. During the course of 2013, we encouraged, I encouraged with the World Bank, an impact assessment, and out of that, came, I think, a greater understanding that we had to help the host communities, because these refugees are distributed across all of Lebanon in every municipality, effectively, not in camps. And multi-donor trust fund was created, again, the World Bank and the UN working together. It is now funded and up and running.
3: If I could ask you about the current political climate in yeah. Lebanon, what do you think will be some of the first challenges that Ms. Kaig will
12: face? There is a good news about the political climate in Lebanon, in that in the spirit of wishing to avoid Lebanon being sucked into conflict, the various political movements have, throughout my time really, been prepared to come together when things look really tough and difficult. They did so at the time of the formation of the present government, the government of Prime Minister Tamam Salam, which we also encouraged and supported. And at this present moment, Hezbollah and the future movement, who represent the largest number of members of the Shia and Sunni communities, respectively, are in dialogue, in dialogue about security. They have a common view to a considerable degree as to the seriousness of the extremist threat which is present on the border. So that's good news politically. But equally, it has failed to deliver so far agreement on the election of a president last May, President Suleiman His term expired, and so far the Parliament has been unable to agree on a successor. This dialogue may help to stimulate a discussion, further discussion. They say this will be one of the items on the agenda. It has helped to stimulate a dialogue between the main Christian parties, too, though that has yet to begin. They're talking about talks, and of course the President has to be a Christian, a Maronite Christian. So there is a process there which I know my successor will want to encourage and not just her because we've worked very closely throughout this period with key member state missions as well, members of the international support group, the representatives, of the permanent members of the security council and some of the main regional players, the Arab League for example.
3: Can you speak in detail about any particular efforts that you've made to reach out to women?
12: Lebanon is a very, we're looking at a middle-income country with very vibrant public life and civil society, open, free. These are amongst the reasons why it's, I think, so important to keep it safe. In the area of UNIFIL's operations just recently, a survey was done of women's views of how best to sustain peace and security in that area and along the blue line. And their inputs were collected, and I and the force commander held a sort of day-long discussion with the representatives, the people who had been sitting in these dialogue sessions. Another point that I've always encouraged, actually, because we have an electoral support role, is to ensure that women participate fully in politics. The truth is that Lebanon is a democracy, but one aspect in which there has been a shortfall is in women's representation in politics. There are only four women members of what is a 124-member parliament. And that's an element that we've spoken out on and encouraged people to think about and to see if ways can be found to encourage at least better representation of women.
1: UN Radio's Paulina Kubek speaking to F- UN's former senior official in Lebanon, Derek Plumbly. It's 8.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's power utility ESCOM has been implementing Stage 2 rolling power cuts since Monday to help bolster power supply for the rest of the week. Stage 1 allows for up to 1,000 megawatts of the national load to be cut Stage 2 for up to 2,000 and Stage 3 for up to 4,000 megawatts. Eskom said the intensified power cuts were necessary because of a shortage of generation capacity. For more on this, we, we earlier spoke to Chief Economist at South Africa's financial firm Efficient Group, Davi Ruot, and started by asking him about the impacts of these power cuts.
4: Well, the short answer always, is always that we don't really know because we need to wait a couple of months to get uh, some information and once you've got the economic data, then we can't necessarily ascribe it to the electricity. There are many other factors affecting the economy as well. But I think, suffice to say, is that we all know whenever we do not have electricity that it's impacting quite heavily on the South African economy. I think what is really important to realize is but the moment that the power actually goes off, the moment you see the lights go down, that moment you know that the damage has been done to the economy already. Because by then, Eskimo has already contacted their large, large customers and asked them uh, to cut back on uh, power uh, consumption. By then, they've already started up the emergency generators and the lights. So the damage has been done when the, power li- when the lights go off already. I've done some calculations on the possible... Uh, the impact of uh, electricity on the South African economy for a whole year. And based on my calculations, the South African economy could have been more than 10% larger than what it is currently if we had sufficient electricity since 2008. If you convert that into money, that is equal to about 300 billion, not a million billion, would it be, annually, or if you convert that into jobs, that's equal to approximately a million jobs that we could have had if we had sufficient electricity since 2009.
1: Now, Davi, let's speak on the issue of the industries that are going to be hardest hit, especially during this difficult time.
4: Well, the industries that are obviously hardest to ignore, the industries that use a lot of electricity, those industries are typically mining, and mining is a very important industry in South Africa. Some other industries are things like, for example, industry, the different industries that we have, the factories, and of course some other industries like Rico. People do not buy that much, and it's really difficult to go to the shops when, when, the, when, when the lights are actually done. But you know, in a in a weird way, it's not only bad news. I also have calculated that Today we use approximately 20% less electricity since 2008 to produce one unit of economy, if you like. So we've become significantly more cost-efficient uh, in the use of electricity. But essentially everybody will be impacted by this lack of electricity in the economy.
1: Now, when you say a certain percentage, we've been using about was it 20% less since 2008. Can you just elaborate further on that?
4: Yes. Well, there are, of course, it's never possible to make an exact calculation like this. And I've done different approaches that I've followed in order to try to calculate the impact of electricity in South Africa. So something that makes the calculation even more difficult is the fact that the South African economy, like the rest of the world, went through this financial crisis 2007-2008, and I had to strip out the effect of the financial crisis then. Uh, And then I make use of different uh, econometric techniques in order to calculate the possible impact, but I'm pretty sure that the impact probably would have been more uh, than the 10% that I've mentioned, and that the economy would have been significantly larger than what it is today. And my number is approximately 10%. Also keep in mind that an economy um, grows year on year. So if you perform well this year, then next year you're going to grow on on your good performance of this year, and if you take one year's economic growth out, then that is economic growth that will be gone forever because it's impossible to go back to yesterday. But without a doubt, ESCO is impacting very, very heavily on the South African economy, and it's even possible that we can see in 2015 weaker economic growth than what we saw in 2014, and 2014 was not a good
1: year. Now, Davi, is renewable energy going to be the right route to take? Is it going to be helpful?
4: Well, you know, my, suggestion, my solution to the problems that they have on electricity is not going to be very popular. I think when, uh, there are a couple of things that we need to realise, and these, the questions on how we need to address this is really basic economics. The reality is, is that we have a certain supply of electricity and we have a certain demand for electricity. Those two forces are completely out of sync that the available electricity is just not nearly enough to satisfy the current demand for electricity. So the first step is that we must get those two forces much better aligned. And I'm afraid the only short-term answer to do this is to increase electricity prices in order to get a better balance between supply and demand. So that must be a first step to increase electricity prices. And I realize it's going to impact heavily on the economy, but we're paying a very dear price already. We're going to have taxpayers, for example, will be forking out many billions of rands that will be transferred to, to Eskom in the budget next month. Apart from that, the second step that we need to do, we have to look at the way that we generate electricity in South Africa. And the reality is that we've been trying up to now, haven't been working well, and we need to make another plan. And I think part of the plan must include much more private sector participation. We need to get more competition in that specific industry. We need to break ESCOM into smaller parts, and we need to privatise parts of ESCOM. But that is, of course, the longer-term objective uh, or longer-term plan. But in the short term, I'm afraid, the best alternative is to increase prices.
1: That was Davi Root, Chief Economist at South Africa's financial firm Efficient Group, joining us earlier. It's 8.46 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tavis Olehoko.
13: South Africa is on power alert. The power utility Eskom says the power system remains vulnerable, meaning that any extra load or faults in the system may necessitate load shedding today. Yesterday, Eskom implemented stage 2 of rolling power cuts to help bolster power supply for the rest of the week. Eskom began with the stage 1 rotational power cuts on Tuesday morning, but later escalated to stage 2. Stage 1 allows for up to 1,000 megawatts of the national load to be cut. Stage 2 for up to 2,000 megawatts and Stage 3 for up to 4,000 megawatts. Meanwhile, fears of a shortage of diesel used to run Eskom turbines have abated. This after South Africa's power utility said it had funds to pay for diesel until the end of March. Eskom is battling to keep demand from overwhelming capacity to keep the lights on. Marisa Simowis reports.
3: The cash-strapped power utility will receive a new budget for diesel from the government in April. Traders in Singapore have meanwhile said Petro S.A. is seeking up to 96,000 tons of diesel for delivery until May. The shipment will arrive ahead of the winter season. ESCOM has moved its controlled outages from Stage 1 to Stage 2, reducing 2,000 megawatts from output.
13: In Lesotho, a number of electricity users have been forced to resort to candle light nights, or rather, candle lit nights, as to the blankets of darkness envelops their homes due to deliberate power enabling the national power hub Lesotho Electricity Company. Lesotho Electricity Company blocked coupons of clients unilaterally, claiming that they did not settle their initial connection fees or balances when they were first provided with electricity. The new feat bore its head as people of Kuti experienced a random blackout after they could not recharge their electricity meters with the newly bought prepaid electricity vouchers. European energy trading houses have emerged as the big winners of a highly sought-after Egyptian tender to buy 75 liquefied natural gas cargos over a one-year period. Vital Noble Group and Trafigura will supply the bulk of the LNG with oil major BP covering the remainder. Officials at Egypt's oil ministry and stage-run gas company Egas could not be reached for comment. Two trading selling prices were linked to brand oil with an estimated 14% indexation. The World Bank has warned that sub-Saharan economies that rely on capital inflows face stagnation, but advise commodity exporting countries like Botswana to invest in their access capital domestically to safeguard future growth. The Bretton Woods Institute's latest global economic prospects analysis showed the region, which is home to some of the continent's large economies, could see growth dampened by a prolonged slowdown in high-income countries and accompanying disruption to global capital flows. The World Bank reveals that without external financing, investment in several countries relying on capital inflows would drop significantly, while slower external demand would reduce the volume of exports. Indicators the Sour on Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance, your gateway to the African continent, the medium of your choice. The US dollar trades at 1150 South African Rad, 946 Sibuswamapula six three seven in Zambia. Zero six six a British pound zero eight nine across the Eurozone. Gold one two eight seven dollars. Platinum one two five five dollars an ounce. Brand crude for eight dollars. Nine six a barrel. Economic update deep pockets. Shorthands. Shorthands deep pockets. Economic update.
1: Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msubudi Makura.
5: Thanks, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with Football News, South Africa has crushed out of the Africa Cup of Nations tournament after wellishing a one-goal lead for a third match in a row against Ghana and Mongomon Tuesday night, losing 2-1. Mandla Masango had sent Bafana Bafana into the lead after 17 minutes with a wonder strike from the edge of the area in Equatorial Guinea. But John Boyer's equaliser at 73 minutes was all it took to condone the South Africans to the bottom of Group C. But there was more misery to come for Sheikh's Mashaba and his outfit when Andrew, or rather Andre Ayu, scored the winner seven minutes from the end, ending South Africa's campaign with a single point from three matches. And even though Bafana Bafana finished bottom of, the log striker Bernard Parker says he's satisfied with their performance and he says there was a lot of positives that can be taken out out of this tournament.
14: Played. We came here to compete, we competed, we played, played our hearts out, and I can guarantee you um, us out of this tournament, I can guarantee you there's no regrets, there's no regrets, and um, we, the, the opposition capitalized on our, on our mistakes, and uh, I would say we, we learned from this.
5: This was the second AFCON tournament for Bernard Parker, who made his debut back in 2013's edition when South Africa took over Kenya, which was no longer able to organize the tournament. And however, in this year's tournament, the 27-year-old had nothing to write home about as he only came in as a substitute against Senegal and was able to play for 24 minutes. And for that, he says he's unable to judge his performance.
14: Um. I wouldn't say if I'm happy or not because uh, uh, I got I got I got five ten minutes touched the ball twice, so I wouldn't even I wouldn't even rate myself in, in that in that kind of manner. But all I did was support the guys, the guys who was playing in front of me, uh, share my experience with them. Also in training, uh, do my best. I, I conducted myself very professional amongst the guys, and um, I think um, I think we we've learned a lot from this tournament. And me personally, um, I, I go back to my club. And then, and then work hard, and, and hopefully the coach will call, will call me again to to represent my country. That's that's what I want to do.
5: On to cricket news. Hashim Amla returns to captain the Castle Laga Proteas for the fifth Momentum One Day International against the West Indies at Supersport Park in Centurion later today. Heavy De Velliers has been rested for the match while Quentin de Kock makes the return to the lineup after a speedy recovery from a left ankle injury sustained back in December last year. The Proteas have made a clear the importance of finishing the series with the win and will see the match as the last opportunity to, uh, to tie our blue sense before leaving for the ICC Cricket World Cup next week. Amla says the French players will have have learned from their loss in Port Elizabeth and will continue to gain more confidence with each playing opportunity. The Proteus have three more matches before their opening match of the World Cup against Zimbabwe in Hamilton on the 15th of February. Apart from Wednesday's or rather today's match, they are scheduled to play a warm-up match against Sri Lanka and New Zealand in Christchurch ahead of the tournament opener. And finally, in cycling. New cycling South Africa President William Newman has declared the African Continental Track Cycling Championship, which took place in Pietermaritzburg, South Africa, in the in the KwaZulu Natal province over the last past weekend, as a big success, with valuable. International Cycling Union points on offer at the Championships. Human, who also serves as the President of the Confederation of African Cycling Track Commission, says the event has provided track cycling on the continent as a welcome boost.
4: The event was a huge success. It was four days of exciting racing. Even the weather played its part. It was fantastic, hot, Peter Nudensburg weather. And, you know, it was an open track, not of world-class standard. That was a big track. Nowadays, the international standard is an indoor 250-meter wooden board track, but this was an open concrete track. But, you know, the cyclists made no excuses. They thoroughly enjoyed the events so from the African Confederation side. We are very happy with what we have put on the table, and our duty now is to obviously to grow the discipline across all the other nations and get more nations competing in the track discipline.
5: Well, those are your sports news out to the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa. the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zola. Africa, Amuka, Na'unai.
1: Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, South Sudan Militant Group to release 3,000 child soldiers and African leaders prepare for AU Summit in Ethiopia. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumusa Ramagaza, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at riseshineafrica. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Yvonne Chaka Chaka with a track titled Motherland.